0: it. Amen. First Samuel chapter 27. If you're not there, get there, if you would, please. And then I will read from the beginning to the end. Follow along with me, if you would, please. This is the most important thing we're going to do this morning. Look at God's Word together, examine our own hearts and might of it. Starting at verse 1, Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There's nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So David arose and went over, he and the six hundred men who were with him, to Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, Every man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel, Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. When it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. Then David said to Achish, If I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be given me in one of the country towns, that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that day Achish gave him Ziklag. Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And the numbers of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. Now David and his men went up and made raids against the Geshurites, the Girzites, and the Amalekites. For these were the inhabitants of the land from of old as far as sure to the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the garments, and come back to Achish. When Achish asked, Where have you made a raid today? David would say, Against the Negeb of Judah, or against the Negeb of the Jeharmalies, or against the Negeb of the Kenites. And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking, lest they should tell us, tell about us, and say, So David has done. Such was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. And Achish trusted David, thinking, he's made himself an utter stench to his people Israel. Therefore, he shall always be my servant. Chapter 28, verses 1 through 2. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, Understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. David said to Achish, Very well, you shall know what your servant can do. Achish said to David, Very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. title this morning comes from the first verse of chapter 27, where David, again, after having this amazing moment of spiritual maturity, of clarity in God's will versus his own, comes immediately afterwards and says, well, I know the Lord has saved me from Saul's hand time and time again as I've wandered around Israel. But one of these days, he's going to kill me. I'm sure of it, David says. And so he says, there is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Now, you might see some wisdom in this, right? If somebody wants to kill you, what do you do? You either kill him, which David's not going to do. We've established that multiple times, haven't we? Or you run away from him. You get as far away from him as you can. And for us to think about fleeing to another country kind of makes sense. To go live amongst another people group where you could hide amongst others that that you wouldn't expect to be found in makes perfect sense. But there's a problem. See, David's words... In verse 1, I shall perish one day by the hand of the Saul. There is nothing better for me. When you say something like that, the best thing I can do, there's nothing better than, you better be really careful about what comes after, right? There's nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Do you notice how David's focus for his refuge, security, for his hope, has shifted from God to now something else, someone else, the Philistines. David's own cleverness on display here. Now Saul mentions this as he's chasing David all across the land. He tells his spies, the uh, the ones who came to him to tell him where David was. He says, "Now be very careful about where he is because I know he's very clever. He's crafty. He's smart." He could slip through my fingers if he wanted to. And this is ultimately David's expression of that craftiness. Now, wouldn't we like everyone to know how clever we are, right? Does it make you think of Peter Pan at all? Oh, the cleverness of me. Wouldn't it be nice for you to know how smart I really am? Wouldn't it be nice to rely on my own crafty scheming and the plans I come up with because who knows me better than me? Who knows what's best for me better than me? This is what David puts on display this chapter, and it's, it's really sad. And in there being nothing better for him, I've broken down this passage into three sections. You can see it in the bulletin if you'd like to follow along. We're going to look at David's best idea, his best position, and then lastly, his best outcome. And I hope that from thy tone, you can already tell that his best isn't going to be good enough, and it isn't even really going to be desirable in any way. Are you familiar with the phrase about best-laid plans failing? Have you ever wondered where that phrase came from? I had no idea this week, and I would have never guessed that it was from a Scottish poet in the 1700s. The guy's name was Robert Burns, and he is known as the National Poet of Scotland itself, which is quite a title. I mean, I'd like to be known as the National Poet of my own household. I feel like that would be significant. But he is known for this phrase of best laid plans, only when I found the poem that he wrote entitled, To a Mouse, I didn't find hardly anything that even really looked like English. You know in Scotland what they speak, right? What do they speak in in Scotland? No. They speak English, right? But this long ago, it didn't sound anything like our English whatsoever. Last night, as I was reading the poem and thinking, wouldn't it be fun to read the whole poem in the sermon tomorrow? I'm not doing that. because I can hardly read it to myself. I went out to Sarah and I said, I got this great idea. And she said, uh-huh. Let's hear it. She's like, you better not do this. So I'm going to give you a line. And maybe a couple more if they come out. Because... It's a good poem. I recommend it to you. Again, Robert Burns, 18th century Scottish poem, entitled To a Mouse. And this phrase of best laid plans not working out comes from this line. <clears throat> but mousy, thou art not, know thy lane. Improving foresight may be vain. The best laid schemes, O mice and men, gang aft agley, And lee us naught but grief and pain. Makes sense, right? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> know thy lane translates roughly to not alone. Gang aft ugly translates to often go awry. So he says to the mouse, you're not alone. Proving foresight may be vain, but the best laid schemes, O oh mice and men, gang aft ugly often go awry. Ain't leave us naught but grief and pain leaves us nothing but grief and pain. The story behind this poem is so every man kind of situation. Robert was out plowing a field. He loved farming. And apparently a lot of his poems came from those experiences because as he was plowing, he overturned the tiniest little mouse nest in his field. And it inspired this, I mean, lines upon lines of poems for this. That that, that he had this deep moment of the reality and the mortality of both man and mouse. And that the best laid schemes of mice and men gang-aftly go ugly. They often go awry. He's speaking to a mouse, which we can just barely put above talking to ourselves, right? At least there's another person involved or another thing. But David here in verse 1, in speaking to himself, is trusting his own best idea, his own best laid plans. And Robert Burns would have jumped in immediately and told him, the best laid plans of mice and men gang after ugly. To go awry. did you hear how they went awry in the end of the passage that's why we went on to chapter 28 because David's plan was to go to the Philistines to do what he does best which is kill people and train people to do so and he would only kill the enemies of the Philistines to keep the Philistines happy and only kill the enemies of Judah to keep himself right with God and not attacking his own people but in the end the king says it's time for us to attack Judah you've got to fight with us the best-laid schemes o' oh mice and men gang after agley. When do you feel that all that is left to you is your own best-laid plans or schemes? Or maybe we should ask, how do we persevere in God's best-laid schemes when we're drawn away to our own? Let's break down the passage again according to how David might have thought about his decisions and actions. Again, best idea, best position, best outcome. Let's start with the idea. You might see how David made a radical departure in this passage from where we left him in chapter 26. At the end of his discussion with Saul, he says in verse 23 of chapter 26, the Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and faithfulness. David proclaims, my character matters in this moment, not just whatever I do that might to be, be to my own benefit, but rather what, how I act and how I think before God because he has a reward for righteousness and faithfulness. But then he decided on his own best laid plans, starting one verse in, the, in the chapter 27. These plans are questionable at least because theologically the land of Israel is incredibly important to the presence of God, the promises of God, and certainly the power of God. This is the land that God promised all the way back generations to Abraham and has fulfilled that promise and given this land. And we know that in Scripture, uh, thinking particularly a couple books back from 1 Samuel to Ruth, that when we leave God's promises, when we step aside and just sidestep from the lane that we're supposed to be in, that our best laid schemes oft go ugly. So it is with David. He says, there's nothing better for me to do than to leave and go to the land of the Philistines because Saul's going to kill me otherwise. How many times has Saul tried to kill David? Enough, right? (laughs) I mean, there's been plenty of instances. And, And really, the last big chunk of the book has been Saul trying to kill David kind of from the beginning of his relationship with him. And God has sustained and protected him. And yet David says, my best idea is to leave. Well, let's level with David, though. Because while leaving the land that the Lord promised to bless him in, was to, in one sense, leave God's presence and promise, we can see that in his first words in verse 1, they real reveal most of what we're going to deal with in this passage. Look again at the first few words. Then David said in his heart. Can you take those words before the comma and recognize how important what we say to ourselves really is? Now, I grew up under the self-esteem umbrella, and I I can remember all the way from kindergarten through sixth grade, the same most wonderful-seeming guidance counselor. And he really did seem awesome, really, really kind. He seemed to even love the Lord. I didn't know much more about him beyond the five minutes in the classroom where he would say, you are lovable and capable. And we go, thank you. And the idea being, if you could just tell yourself these kinds of things, you are successful, you are talented, you're smart, you're really good looking, whatever it might be. The self-esteem model says, if I can speak these things into my life, then those things can become real. But we know that's certainly not what the Bible presents and I think that plenty of us can express from experience that simply believing and powerful thinking, positive thinking, is never going to be enough. The matter that we need to deal with is truth. And what David doesn't do right here is he doesn't tell himself the truth. When we were studying chapter 22, I shared with you uh, Martin lloyd Jones's line that most of our unhappiness in life is due to the fact that we're listening to ourselves instead of talking to ourselves. We're listening to ourselves instead of talking to ourselves. We're letting that self talk that naturally happens, that's happening right now, even if you don't realize it, dictate our decisions, our thoughts, our beliefs, all those kinds of things, rather than taking truth and proclaiming it to ourselves the way the psalmist does when he says, Why are you downcast, O my soul? Hope in God, for I will yet again praise him. That's truth, that's not feelings. That's not just bolstering up, hey, you're really not as bad as you think you are. The truth is, you're far worse than you think you are. I'm far worse than I think I am. But his mercy is more. Now, David's plan from here is to say, basically, the enemy of my enemy is my what? Friend. Or, let's again use more modern vernacular, frenemy. David, like we so often do, grew tired of looking for God's best laid plans and went after his own. So the problem that we want to address this morning is that his perseverance in the Lord seems to have run out. And what are we to do when that happens for us? Do we look for the, wi- the wise ways of the world in this kind of phrase that, hey, the enemy of my enemy is my friend because we have a common enemy, and because we have a common enemy, there's no way that we could be enemies of each other? It's not necessarily going to be the case. So... What does David do? He makes a friend of me in Achish. Achish, again, being the king of Gath, where if we always hear Gath, we should always think back to the most famous, famous Gathite, which was Goliath, whose head David cut off. Right, Thaddeus? Yeah. And in the end of this passage that we read in verse 2, Achish actually says something ironic. He says, very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. Which, in the first place, you go, man, David, what are you doing getting caught up with the Philistines? You're supposed to be king of Israel. And the, the word usage, particularly the Akish says here, bodyguard, means the guard of my head. The keeper of my head. You can see the irony of what David does with the heads of people from Gath. But this is his best idea. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. He finds a safe place. He figures for his own family as well as the hundreds of families at this point that are with him. Remember, there are 600 men. And after all the traveling and all these things, we can imagine that many of them have found wives and had babies. And and there could be a thousand people at this point that are following David. And so let's level with David and not demonize him by saying, Goodness, you're such an idiot, and I would have never done that. But again, we need to say, as we've often done in our study of David, let's not idolize him either. These passages are here to point something very particular out to us. Our own need to persevere in the presence of the Lord under the truth of God and not our own truth or our own best laid plans. So I'd ask you at this point to look at your life this past week. Is there something that you consistently told yourself? You know what a mantra is? A mantra is a thing that you say with the motivation that if I keep saying it, it'll actually happen, you know, kind of like that self-esteem, self-talk, right? What are the mantras of your life? If I can get my work done, I can play. If I can do this, then this will happen. If I'm, you know, just constantly drilling it into your head that this is what we need to do, what are those things that you tell yourself? What are your own best laid plans that could be toppled like a mouse's nest from a farmer's plow? because that's how life hits us, isn't it? We are little mice under the weight of the world, under the weight of our own sin. What are your best laid plans? How have you seen them fall apart? What do you do when your best idea is all you seem to have? Let's move on, verses 8 through 12, to David's best position. At this point, he gets a home base. He's the exiled king, self-exiled in this case. I mean, he's, he's confessed in chapter 26. He says, look, everybody's turning you, Saul, against me and, and basically saying, go off and serve other gods. And so he ultimately did it. Well, staying in Ziklag gave David the opportunity to do what he did best without the king's interference. So from there, he can take the men he trained to kill and go and do that. He would go off and attack neither Israel nor the Philistines, but the people groups that were there from of old, verse 8 tells us. Then he would tell Achish that he went after the Judaite lands. And this is where some commentators, you know, made my life really difficult this past week. Some of them think that what David's doing here, just for some more Bible history um, scaffolding, that what David's doing here is actually completing the conquest of Joshua. That he's going on and he's he's taking out these people groups and that that's what God wanted him to do. I just didn't think that that lined up with his first line in verse 1. There's nothing better for me to do than to leave the Philistines. It's not as though he's saying, I think I have an opportunity to do some good work here that the Lord has called me to. Did you notice that God is silent in this chapter? He doesn't say anything new, at least. On the other hand, David seems to just be doing what he does best. And part of why we say he's not doing the conquest exactly would be because in the conquest, everything was meant to be under the ban. You were supposed to destroy everything. You weren't supposed to get anything for yourself. And yet David would take the best of all these cities after slaughtering man, woman, and child, and then he would give part of that to Achish as tribute. And then he would sustain his family. He would sustain his own people. He would build up Ziklag. He would make his own kingdom outside of God's kingdom. Do you see the problem with the picture of this? And then do you see your own best laid plans? Our own best laid plans are only ever going to be to build a kingdom outside of God's kingdom. That's tough. Verse 11, David would have would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath. Thinking, here he is again thinking, right? What's the line in beauty and the beast? Gaston says it. Lefou, I'm afraid I've been thinking. He says, a dangerous pastime? I know. Be careful what you think. Be careful what you tell yourself. So David's thinking, lest they should tell all about us and say, so David has done, he wipes all of them out. And then the writer says, this was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. That word custom is an interesting one. It's justice, literally. We'll talk about that later. But... This is where David thought the best place to be. He kept everyone in the dark about what he was doing by leaving no survivors. So Achish says in verse 12, he's made himself an utter stench to his people Israel. Questionable about whether he is actually attacking his own people or only those, like I said earlier, who were common enemies, right? Achish fully believes that David has totally defected and he's basically a mercenary for the Philistines. But then he says this, Therefore he shall always be my servant. I'm drawing a blank. It was Bob Dylan. You're going to serve somebody, right? David can't say, I don't know how to serve God here, so I'm just going to go off and serve myself. Well, guess what? He's immediately under the servitude of Achish. And Achish Achish in Gath has a wonderful plan for David's life that involves him being his servant. Or as he says again in verse verse 2 of chapter 28, of being his bodyguard for life. See, we can't dismiss the things of eternity for the things of today that we think, well, it's just temporary, it's not going to last forever. There are eternal consequences in our temporary actions. And Achish is pointing that out to us. He will always be my servant. He will be my bodyguard for life. If David continues on this path, he's going to become a Philistine. You're not supposed to do that, Israel. You're supposed to be making Philistines become part of Israel. You're supposed to be pointing them to the one true God and not worshiping false gods. David thinks there's nothing better, though. Nothing better for him than for a lifelong service to Achish. After all, verse 4 shows that Saul had given up. Maybe his problems are really over. Best idea, best position, they seem to pay off at certain points. Don't you remember times in your life when you followed your own cleverness, your own best laid plans, your own mind and nearly forgot the Lord himself? Do you remember why that might have been so easy to do? Could it have been that your cleverness worked? Maybe the self-esteem thing isn't so far off. Maybe maybe we are pretty smart. Hmm. Maybe our best laid plans could be the best. We can convince ourselves that we've acted rightly because we look at the results. And you know what this is? It's pragmatism. The ends justify the means. I know that my plans were best because my little mouse nest hasn't been turned over by the farmer's plow. David finally had a home, after all. No more wandering in the wilderness. Those hundreds of families traveling with him could call Ziklag their home. This was all they wanted for maybe years. And Doesn't that make the way he went about it okay? It sure seems like a great reward compared to the one that he traded off. From the Lord, Because the Lord's reward involved him running from Saul constantly from place to place, waiting and waiting and waiting until it was his turn, until God gives him the throne. David said, well, if you're not going to let me kill Saul and you're not going to put me on the throne, maybe I can find a throne somewhere else. And the scary thing about that is that in the silence of God, we can convince ourselves that we've done the right thing, that we've actually been very wise. We can become very pragmatic in our worldview. And we can even gospelize it in a sense. We can Christianize this type thing. You know, the Lord has given me a stewardship over my life after all. So when he allows me to make my own plans and, and chart my own course and things go well, great. I've paid my tithe. I've gotten baptized. I've attended church. I've done some spiritual things. I've helped certain people. So why shouldn't he reward me by making my plans prosper? See how easy it is? Well, that was his best position. Let's look at his best outcome, because this is where it all falls apart. We took a peek into chapter 28 so that we could get the rest of the story and and let the story end in a cliffhanger for us, really, because we don't know what David's going to do. But we do know that now an event is coming where he will not be able to hide what he's been doing. He won't be able to hide the fact that he's been lying to Achish, that he's only been attacking mutual enemies, and he's got to make a decision. Either he's going to go to war with Achish and kill his own countrymen... Or he's gonna to have to do something else. But he's stuck between a rock and a hard place. Akish assumes he knows what David's gonna do. But David sounds like, he sounds like he's saying he doesn't even know what he's gonna do. Listen again to the conversation. Akish says, Understand, you and your men are gonna go out with me in the army. David said to Akish, Very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Akish said to David, Very well. I'll make you my bodyguard for life? Like, what are we saying here, David? Are you saying we're going to see what you can do for me or against me? In this case, David's cleverness is kind of covering his own mistake a little bit. But the mistake is still there. The outcome is still going to come to a head. He's still going to have to deal with this fact that he is stuck. And unless God acts, he's going to have to make an action. He's going to have to take a stand. He's gonna to have to stop looking neutral and pick a side. His attempts to make his own way have come to a very familiar crossroads because Saul has been in this position for most of the book. If you remember, Saul was chosen as a king like the what? Like the nations. Not like the Lord, but like the nations. Israel said to Samuel, who was the prophet of God, Hey, we want a king, just like everybody else has. And God said, You got it. Saul was terrible, self-absorbed, foolish, unrighteous, wicked, slaughtering anyone who goes against him. And though David, the man of God's own choosing has persevered for so long, he's starting to show us that he's almost giving up on righteousness and faithfulness. That he's at least tempted to do so. And he's actually looking more Saul-like than he ever has. John Woodhouse, whose commentary I read weekly, said David possessed all the weaknesses that led to Saul's downfall. That's scary, isn't it? For what we've seen of Saul, we want David to be on the complete other side, but chapter twenty eight shows us, sorry, twenty seven and chapter twenty eight show us that David's not that far off from Saul, and the truth is is neither are we. Back to verse eleven. The author told us that he left no survivors in his raids, as was his custom, which again, literally translates to justice, which is a sibling word to righteousness, which we've been playing around with here. The matter of enduring in righteousness, persevering, of pressing on and continuing. The outcome of David's own righteousness, his own custom here, is that what he has hidden is soon to be revealed. Mousy thou art, know thy lane, and proving foresight may be vain. The best laid schemes of mice and men gang after agli, and leave us naught but grief and pain. David's going to have to face grief and pain if he has to lift up a sword against his countrymen, his brothers. But David may say, There was nothing better. What else could I have done? And again, we have to level with him. We get it. God didn't seem to give him a direction, a new thing to do at that step. We have to level with them because we also work our own customs and righteousness. It's easier than persevering with the Lord, after all. It convinces us for a time that we're right to follow it. All the while, we start to stink, just like David. It's one of the best arguments for the validity of Scripture. When we look at the heroes of the faith, When we come to David, who has been so faithful and so good and and slipped up here or there, but he makes this massive U-turn, it reminds us that the authors of Scripture, the human writers, led by the divine inspiration of God, didn't whitewash anybody in here. Abraham lies about his wife. Joseph is prideful about his dreams. Moses kills a man. And David defects to the Philistines. Why is it that the Bible doesn't just try to win us over with tales of how everything worked out exactly as they hoped, according to their own best laid plans? I think one answer is that we're all mice under the deadly plow of sin. But we're not victims in that, church. We've built our home under its shade. We've found comfort in it. But the crushing blow will come down and our own righteousness, our own customary ways of dealing with circumstances, our own best laid plans will not last. So are you enduring and living faithfully and righteously before the Lord? Or has it become such a burden that you too think there's nothing better for you than to abandon his promises and to lay out your own plans? What do you tell yourself? When you've had enough. Let me give you something to tell yourself. Hebrews 12:3. The author tells us to consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Consider Jesus Christ, because David crumbled in chapter 27 under the hostility that he faced. Jesus did not. Don't trust in someone like David. Don't trust in yourself. Bury your best laid plans and consider Jesus Christ. You know, the Greek word in that verse means literally to think upon and consider deeply. And I pray that's what you come to on Sunday morning. What you come to do to consider deeply who Jesus is. Don't just check off Sunday service on your list of to-do things. Consider deeply who Jesus is so that when your best laid plans pop up in your mind, there's nothing better for me to do. You could say there is something better. I can consider Jesus Christ who endured such hostility from sinners that I could never dream of. He endured the wrath of God himself for my sin. And because he's paid the penalty for me, I now walk in newness of life. And I'm able to consider things outside of my own best laid plans. God has saved me from whatever I wanted to do in my life. And he's brought me right here in this moment. Praise God. God has spoken to us in Christ. And church, when you cast your eyes upon the sweet words of our Savior, they are living and active. They're as living and active as when they were first written. They're in fact as living and act as active as if you were the first to hear them. They have not changed whatsoever. Isaiah forty, verse eight says, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands, who knows, forever. It stands forever. God's word is not cringing under the weight of society and pressure and parenting and all the things that we feel crushed by. That plow that looms over us does not loom over the word of God and it certainly doesn't loom over the God of the word. He is victorious over our sin. Maybe today you need to commit to talking to yourself more than listening to yourself. Could it be that in the past week you've done less truth-talking and more listening to your feelings? I know that's true for myself. Maybe you need to tear down your best-laid plans before they tear you down. In the moment you face a choice of either acting in righteousness or laying unrighteous plans of your own making, deeply consider Jesus Christ, the third and better option. He who has risen, after dying in your place, conquering sin, and who calls you not to come up with the best idea, not to come up with the best position or the best outcome, but to place your trust fully in him, to deal with the sin in your life, to deal with the weights and the plows that loom over you in your little mouse nest of your existence, to recognize that he alone stands in mercy before the throne of God above, speaking on our behalf with full confidence that the Father accepts us by faith in him and has better for us than what the world has to offer. He it is who deserves our glory, church. We reserve none for our own best anything. See, embracing our best plans as opposed to God's is in one way to stand in prideful opposition to him. Lord, you don't know what's best for me. You've only got your own plans. I want my own. I want to make my way. Christ has come to not only make the way, but be the way, the truth, and the life. So come to the Father. Come to him in prayer. Come to him in confidence. Come to him At the cross, bury your best laid plans deep so that you're not tempted to dig them back up. Bury them at the cross and trust in him.